Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we talked with Andrew Rossi about his series on Netflix, The Andy Warhol Diaries. Here's how Andrew describes the series. The Andy Warhol Diaries is an intimate look at the figure that we all know as one of the most famous artists whose personal life has been obscured for so long. And the diaries are a first person window into who he really was. Andrew Rossi is an Emmy-nominated director of documentaries, including Page One, Inside the New York Times, and Ivory Tower, both of which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and The First Monday in May, which was the opening night film at the Tribeca Film Festival. This is a sprawling, six-part epic account of a sliver of Andy's life. So you're not going to get a lot here about the factory years, which are often the years that are most covered. You're getting the later years, which are often dismissed as this after party, if you will, of Andy's career. And I think that my sense of him was, and this is not completely wrong, wandering aimlessly from party to party and doing some commissioned work to pay the bills. That's probably the very cynical account I had of this period. And I think Andrew Rossi does a great job of opening that up and showing certainly on a, the personal level, more interesting story, much, much deeper dynamic between Andy and some of his lovers and some of his friends. And also, I think, makes a really good case at the same time that this later work does have a great deal of value, that it reflects Andy's personal life and it reflects his growing awareness of the struggle of the gay world in the Reagan years. There's so many things that stood out for me about this documentary. I, I think often filmmakers either gravitate toward the aesthetic and the artistic side of things or the ideological, but they don't try to bridge both. And I think Andrew does do both and he does both in a very interesting way. And those come out in the stories he tells, the interviews he does with people and what he covers and what he leaves out. I also think clearly this film is going to be noted for its use of AI and the voice of Andy Warhol that's created using AI. And personally, I found it to be extremely well done and essential to giving life to the diaries and creating a deeper emotional text. Ironically, the use of AI gives this film more emotion and more personality than it would have had otherwise. Oh, absolutely. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us, rate us, share us with a friend. We greatly appreciate it. It truly does help other people find us. Coming up, our conversation with Andrew Rossi about his series on Netflix, The Andy Warhol Diaries. Andrew Rossi, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you and congratulations on the Andy Warhol Diaries. It's epic and it's amazing. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So, Andrew, why do you make documentary films? I first became a, an avid fan and student of documentaries, I would say, at the end of high school and then really in college when I saw The War Room. I remember seeing it in a movie theater in New Haven and I was just stunned to be in the room with Bill Clinton and with James Carville. And I really was excited by the notion that as a filmmaker, you could, particularly in verite filmmaking, let viewers see the historical record and make their own decisions, but of course, craft the story in a way that you 
invest it with everything that you think is important. And so when I first started making docs, I also was shooting myself in a sort of a way to emulate in my very imperfect way what D.A. Pennybaker had done. I made a film about the New York Times through the point of view of David Carr, who was a media columnist there. And I really loved that sort of follow doc tradition and making a story like that. But actually at the conclusion of that film, I was thinking about a next project and the Andy Warhol diaries came to mind as a, another sort of first person way into the story of a great institution, cultural figure, Andy Warhol, but hopefully in a way that would be on a bigger canvas, employing a, a very deep well of archival images and also adapting Andy Warhol's diaries, which are over hundreds of pages long. So it was a journey though. It took me 11 years to get there, but it all stems from, I think, this love of kind of being in the room with, being intimate and close to a, a figure or, or an institution that we don't understand and giving viewers this like unique way into it. Maybe it'd just be great for our audience if you could just explain what the, the Andy Warhol Diaries were originally a book and just the nature of that book. So Andy Warhol first started keeping a diary or, or some record of his life in the 1970s when he was audited by the IRS. He actually started calling his friend and colleague, Pat Hackett, who had started at the factory back in 1968 as an intern while she was in college. He started telling her about all of the expenses he had accrued the night before. Everything from taxi receipts to drinks and other expenses. They did this for a couple of years and it slowly evolved into a more in-depth conversation between them that was almost like a therapy session on one level, on another level, almost like a confession. Andy was a Byzantine Catholic and their conversations just became so layered that they started to then keep a formal diary in 1976. And so the Andy Warhol Diaries is a six-part series that is adapting those 10 years of Andy talking to Pat, because he kept it until 1987, just a week or two before he, he died. It's in some ways a catalog that can be very blank of all the parties he went to and the people he saw. There was a real emphasis on boldface names. But on other levels, Andy really shares some of his most feelings about his role as an artist, his place in the culture. And then what I found most moving and revelatory was his feelings about his lovers. The depth of his sort of pathos and almost melodramatic, you know, lust for some of these men, his feelings of hurt that they're not reciprocating his feelings is so contrary to the flat and robotic image that he projected as a persona, as a public persona in the culture, that I think it forces us to revisit who he is, what he means in the culture, but then also what his artwork really means. Because I think once you understand his flesh and blood feelings and also his particular queer point of view on the world, everything from the portraits of Marilyn Monroe and, and Elizabeth Taylor 
to the Death and Disaster series depicting the electric chair. All of these works take on new dimensions. Andy Warhol's part of the air that we breathe. He's influenced so much in our culture from formally repetition and color palette and other elements that we see, particularly in the digital landscape, but also in the iconic and in the emphasis on personality. And there's a, a connection that's sort of tragic and romantic and emotional between him and these figures that he's presenting and iconicizing. And when we understand that's coming from a, a queer place um, of pain in some ways and shame, it, I think, revolutionizes the role of that type of imagery and media in our culture. Let me jump to a very important character in the film, which is this voice of Andy Warhol, speaking of robots. Recently, Morgan Neville received some criticism for recreating the voice of Anthony Bourdain in his film Roadrunner. And really, right from the start of the series, you alert us to the fact this is a AI, the Andy Warhol Foundation gave permission to, to do this. And at the end of each segment, you have a little card that says, voice of Andy Warhol, model by resemble AI performed by Bill Irwin, which is intriguing just on the face of it. You know, just another confounding piece here is Bill Irwin, of course, came to fame from his silent work on stage, Northern Exposure, and probably most widely known for Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street. So using him as your voice actor is just in interesting on the face of it. Can you talk a little bit about what this voice is? How did you create it? I always felt that when I read the diaries, Andy was speaking to me directly. It's again, several hundred pages. Over time, the cadence of his language creates a rhythm. It feels very personal and very human. And that is so central to the connection that I hope the viewer and, and certainly I think the reader makes from the book, but the viewer can make to Andy that to have a, a narrator who is perhaps a famous person. That was one way to go that I thought of. For example, we remember maybe David Bowie from Julian Schnabel's Basquiat film depicting Andy Warhol. I think that that was a, a, a brilliant choice and, and David Bowie did a great job. And there's, of course, this synchronicity between Bowie's persona and, and Warhol's. But in many ways, Bowie steals the show from Andy there. And I thought this as a documentary hybrid, that's really meant to sort of amplify the record on Andy's own terms. I wanted to eliminate the middle person and have you hear Andy. So at the point that I was making the series, AI and voice cloning had really reached a, a point where you could get pretty close with a small data set. And so that's exactly what I did. I provided Resemble AI, this company that does all manner of algorithm work to recreate voices with a BBC interview of Andy speaking, which of course was challenging because he's doing an interview and of course he doesn't answer questions very extensively. So it's maybe a half an hour interview, but we were only able to extract two minutes of actual words by Andy that were clean. And so Resemble AI took that sound and created an algorithm, which is literally a platform where you can type in words with Andy's Pittsburgh accent, which is in and of itself a, a, a really fascinating regional mix of perhaps Pennsylvania, but then also Indiana. Many people have different points of view on what that accent is, and it is able to take any word and convert it. But that was not completely, it was still too robotic. And even though I wanted to lean into the roboticness because 
I thought that was consistent with Andy's practice. He had himself made into a robot and into a hologram. I, I just felt like we needed something to warm it up. And Bill Irwin, who, as you note, is famous for very interesting depictions, but also he's played different roles, including Lucky in Waiting for Godot, which is a role that I love. I actually played it myself when I was in, in college, and it is coming from Samuel Beckett's incredible linguistic play on language. And so Bill has this really remarkable way of intoning words. And so I think he brings to the the sound of Andy's voice something that remains sometimes monotone, but then at moments there's this whiplash where it feels really warm and I think you can feel the pain. And so that was my hope also is that, you know, I'm making a documentary on a figure who has revolutionized the way that we think about so many creative things, not just images, but also our personas. Andy sort of invented the idea of the artist as art. He's a human being who's operating in the world as a unique avatar of himself, almost like an alien type of figure. And so what formal choices can be made that really reinforce that? I think the, the voice was one both with Bill and the algorithm that hopefully gets us close to that. One thing that I noted in the technique, at least as I understood it from Resemble, is that it allowed you, the creative team, to make small adjustments or adjustments rather quickly. What occurred to me is, wow, this is a new tool in the director's toolkit, something that as directors, you're not really trained how to do something like that. So it's a case where you really had to develop and hone a new skill. I, I think it actually really helped me in the writing too, because I had written scripts to adapt the diaries. And then for each scene, it was an exercise in triangulating the archival images that were available and then what Andy said. So there was a first sort of tier of choosing what are the scenes we're going to have, but then within them, how can the language be finessed or compressed? to really highlight a particular metaphor or reference that Andy is making. And the algorithm that Resemble AI made allowed us to literally type in different versions of a scene or of language that Andy is saying. The diary entries I was able to produce multiple versions of, and that was transformative because I didn't have to go and record it with the human being. <laughs> you know, 10 different times, but like in real time, I could keep adjusting it. The other great thing about what Resemble AI provided is that there were some levers, like digital controls that you can use to make it faster or slower, emphasize certain words. Those, when we were using them, were a little bit still in progress. Like Resemble is a startup. It's genius that they have it available, but it was still a little bit rough. And so it wasn't really until Bill then did a final pass recording everything that I think it, it became really human. Just yeah. a quick observation, which is I think those adjustments I know affected me strongly as a viewer, and it did add a strong emotional and I think personal element. Thank you so much. We were going to possibly talk about the ethics of this, and we we're like, wow, Andy would find that so boring. There's so much we could talk about here. So after the first two parts, which are a little sprawling as we catch up to where the diaries start, part three, a double life. 
Andy and John. And the title there is very interesting, but for now, uh, let's put that aside. So this centers on the years of 1980 and 1981, when Andy, in the wake of the dissolution of his long-term relationship with Jed Johnson, basically pursues John Gold, a paramount executive who, like Andy, seems to be open about his sexuality in certain arenas, but in public either deflects like Andy or puts up a front like John. And one of the things I really loved about part three is you have so much supporting material for what we hear in the diary, we see on the screen. It really creates this simulacrum. We can feel like we're there, I think. You have scenes from the private plane, it seems, uh, a car drive through what seems to be a coastal Massachusetts town, and really effectively visual accounts of this house party weekend at John Gould's homestead, I believe. You talked about the real Andy, and I really, I want to talk more about this realness and authenticity, but we really seem to see another side of Andy, one that John seems to bring out. We see shots of Andy being affectionate, smiling broadly, for him at least. Are, are we seeing the real Andy? Yes, yes. Thank you for referencing that. And it is indeed, that is not AI. <laughs> that is the actual Super 8 footage that Christopher Makos took on this weekend trip to Cape Cod. They were staying at the home of Peter Wise, who was dating Christopher at the time. And this trip was meant to solidify the nascent relationship between Andy and John. Basically, Christopher met John originally and introduced him to Andy. And after Andy broke up with Jed Johnson, literally the next day, he sent roses to John Gould, who he had met just a couple of days before, in order to find a relationship with that would replace the one he had with Jed. So when he goes to Cape Cod, he shares with Pat a very detailed description over two or three days of this trip, all the places that they went to, including the chowder house, the, their excursions to the beach, to feeding ducks, and a, a water pistol fight that they had in which Christopher and John are chasing each other around the table. And then everyone is playing with party favors. The remarkable thing is this is one of these rare opportunities where the diary matches up with footage of that actual time. So the sort of dream of the series is to immerse the viewer in the real-time moment. And this was footage that Christopher had that I had seen like 10 seconds of it online, but it had never been shown in its entirety. I believe there were like five or six reels. It, it was one of those jaw-dropping moments to see footage of Andy in a coat and hat throwing bread to the ducks. We see him in the dining room of this classic New England wood paneled house that's really small and, and warm and intimate. And he's wearing a pink sweater and he's smiling and, and, and laughing and raising his glass. This is not the Andy Warhol that you see, right? Like on the red carpet at the MTV Music Awards or even in black and white footage at the factory from the 1960s, being in a corner with his sunglasses. Instead, it's like him with his boyfriend or the person he hopes will really become his long-term companion across the table, gesturing to him to raise his chin and telling him how he might look better. It's really incredible. As I said this, I talked a little bit about the confounding nature before. Like, Complicate this a bit, I think, though, because something in part three happens that threw me. And again, for two and a half hours, I've been on this 
trip with Andy. Very literally, it's very rich, warm voice there. Uh, a little robotic, but still rich and warm in other ways. Up to that point, I said, okay, well, I'm seeing his performative life, but then I'm hearing his personal musings, and these are kind of at odds. But then you mentioned two things in quick succession that kind of makes me rethink that, or really made me rethink. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. First, the photographer, Chris Marcos, as you mentioned, suggests that one incident that Andy describes in the diaries, John hitting Chris, may not have happened. Uh, and suggests that this is more like the Fire Island documentary or something. 100%. And then secondly, very quickly after that, we learn that Andy tells John that he's writing about John in his diaries. And John says, stop, don't do that. And we realize John understands that these diaries may be a public project at some point, I think. And so we're like, wait a minute. So it dawned on me that these diaries were from the beginning, maybe thought of as another performance, another mask, another persona. The scene is complicated by Andy's own feelings of never getting close enough to John. So he basically describes this idyllic moment in Cape Cod and then quickly says that on the plane ride back, he felt like he wished that he would die because John seemed to recoil emotionally from the amount of intimacy that occurred with Andy. Like he basically got freaked out by how close he was and then didn't want to go back with them together. And this is part of this really difficult line that Andy has to walk and that John does as well in terms of being comfortable with their identity and the intimacy that they might have together. And Christopher Makos, who has filmed this material and then who I speak with throughout the series, but particularly in the last episode, really pushing him to reckon with Andy's sexuality and to also understand his own role in helping Andy to come to terms with himself after doing the Altered Images project where Andy dressed as a woman and Christopher took photos of it. Christopher, in reading the passage, I asked him to read it himself, immediately says that what Andy is describing seems off to him because basically Andy talks about how John and Chris were chasing each other and then Chris slapped John and John then told Andy that he liked it and that there's almost a sort of like, there's some sort of play in terms of the dominance of the figures vying for Andy's attention in, in an erotic way, having their own dynamic between each other in Christopher today reading that describes it as like, oh, this is just a, a Fire Island melodrama, which I think is, is really interesting because Fire Island also in the queer community represents a particular form of community. So it's a much more out and sexually liberated world than the Cape Cod preppy world of 1981 where they were. And I think Christopher like Andy and others is able to move between different worlds within the gay community, but feels almost like embarrassed by what Andy is describing. And so, of course, Christopher also is one of the people in the beginning says, you know, look, this is not the Bible. The, the diaries is Andy's point of view. And Pat Hackett, to whom he was speaking, says a lot of people said, well, that's not true. That's not how it happened. But Everything is Rashomon. And, and what she's referring to there is the movie by Kurosawa that's looking at an event from many people's different perspectives. And so what is truth, right? This is Andy's description to Pat. 
Pat also edited it. Who knows what she decided to include or not include, because sometimes the passages can be extremely long. Again, this is a moment where all of these different vectors are colliding. We have Andy's recollection that we're hopefully bringing to life through the AI voice. We have the incredible footage that Christopher shot on Super 8, and then also some photographs that Andy took. And then we have Christopher pushing back on the record. And then we have John also, who's only able to be present through his twin brother, Jay Gould who talks about the fact that John really wanted to make it as a movie executive. And he felt that this relationship would compromise his professional ambitions. And so in fact, then when they land back in New York, John moves to LA for a couple of months because he just, he can't take the intensity of being in a relationship with Andy. So all of that, I think is a way to go on this ride, like you were saying, take this trip with them, but then also I think hopefully critique a, a part of queer history that we don't always think about. And a lot of people have lived their lives either in the closet or in a double way where they're not wanting to be intentionally dishonest, but they just are trying to deal with a really homophobic society. And so that is, as you said, why the episode is a double life. I think it's very interesting how you begin and end this episode. You started by reminding us that Andy would often say he would like to be a machine. And then you show someone trying to build an Andy robot and you show some amusing slash alarming photos of that process. And then you finish with a story of Andy going to Club 54 with John and finally dancing and saying, from now on, I'm always gonna dance. Why did you choose to bracket this story with those two sequences? I think that Andy's desire to be a robot was not just a persona that he thought would gain traction in the culture, but it was also a form of protection. It was an armor. He wanted to protect his heart, which as Lucy Sant says, was so fragile that it was almost wrapped up in gauze. But John somehow tapped into some idealistic feeling. I think so much of Andy's work and his words in the diaries are driven by a sense of shame and a kind of velvet rage is what it's been described as now, a sense that as a queer person, because the society, the mainstream society, especially up until the legalization of same-sex marriage in the United States, has told you that your love is not legitimate and that it cannot be honored. And so there's a sense that one can never be loved. And, that, and there's just like a hole or a void. And to protect himself, I, I would contend from that pain, he wanted to be a robot, but John somehow made him feel, even notwithstanding all of these doubts that he had, that he could be loved. And so by the end, John makes him feel like he can dance. And so he says, all those years I was, I was with Jed, he never got me to dance, but John you know, did. He's at Studio 54 with him. And so he says, so now I'll be dancing. And then we cut to Lashik singing dance, dance, and it's the sort of triumphant moment for him. You've said that the diaries reveal a queer longing and have described the diaries as a seminal queer text that conveys Andy's queer longing. Why is it so important to establish Andy's queerness and also the diaries as an expression of gay longing? Well, again, I think it goes back to understanding this imagery, these works of art that are such pillars of 20th century culture. To see the Marilyn or the Elvis portraits, 
to see the electric chair and the Campbell soup can as merely commentaries on capitalism or commodities is important, but it's only part of the picture. I think that what Jessica Beck, for example, has been able to do at the Warhol Museum is to look at how Andy's queer point of view has informed so much of his work, including and, and especially the last decade of his work and the last maybe four or five years that really gets into camouflage, Rorschach, and then the Last Supper series that can be interpreted as a commentary on HIV AIDS. And in fact, the death of John, spoiler alert there, hopefully that's, you've watched it already, but to see his work as reflecting a sense of connecting to the tragedy of Marilyn and Liz and and their troubled lives and the way that he, as Patrick Moore describes, a little queen would find in these iconic figures someone that resonates his pain, his point of view, transforms those works into an emotional story that to me is incredibly relevant. And this is also part of unerasing a, a piece of his identity that others share and that feels like it has to be hidden. So there's also an ethical component. It's not just an abstract intellectual decoding of the work, but it's unerasing lives and relationships. Jed Johnson is a figure who very few knew lived with Andy and actually shared a bed with him. We have all manner of stories about like the mistresses of Picasso and the women who posed in boudoirs for Monet or other people. Maybe I'm getting <laughs> those artist names wrong, but there's so much about the sort of heroic hetero pursuit of artists and how much that influence their work. And when it comes to queer artists like Jasper Johns or Robert Rauschenberg or Cy Twombly, other figures who've had a, a real important role on the ways that we manufacture visual messaging and, and images in our culture, the art history elides it or obscures it or doesn't really talk about it. And so this series, I hope, is marking a new phase in that kind of review of the past and artists. One of the things that I would note is that it's not just a process of you uncovering these things or finding the archival material, but it's your presence as an interviewer. You're generally behind the scenes. We just mostly hear the answers, but occasionally we hear your questions. And then even in a few cases, we hear you following up, I would say fairly assertively with the interviewees and it seems invariably those are the situations where you're trying to get someone like Chris Makos, who knew Andy, who was with him during this time, to basically admit that Andy's queerness is a really important part of his work. And there is that moment where you actually show Chris an image of one of Andy's paintings in the Last Supper series and say, see, doesn't this show hidden in plain sight, Andy bringing up such issues as AIDS? That's correct. And yes, that's the big C painting that Jessica Beck has interpreted both through its imagery, but also the original newspaper 
items from which Andy painted the source material that had on the same page references to AIDS, the possibility that that painting was even subconsciously a reflection of his view of Jesus Christ, who's at the center of the painting as an avatar of judgment and mercy with the big C in big block letters representing gay cancer. Whether you believe that that painting does mean that or does signify those things, Christopher's response was so interesting. And that's where I really pushed back because he compared Andy to Liberace and said, oh, you know, when we went to a, a concert of Liberace's, I'm sure everyone in the audience didn't care if Liberace was gay or not. They thought, well, you know, Liberace's gay, you decide. And so that's where I say, well, it's not a decision. A person's identity does not get determined by the viewer or by the audience. It can be fluid. It is always within the person's right to say what they are or not, but it is not determined by trying to curry favor with the audience or to modulate it so that it is a product that can be sold. When Andy was living through the 60s and 70s and the 80s, that is what maybe they felt, that they needed to lean into a more abstract or robotic persona that Andy needed to do that in order to be successful to sell his commission portraits or to get into certain shows in certain galleries. But today in 2022, or in, in that case, I was speaking to Christopher in, in 2021, for me as a filmmaker, it's not interesting to keep perpetuating the myth or to accept what we have received from the 70s and 80s. Instead, I want to challenge those people who live with him to just at least entertain whether you can interpret a painting in a different way. And it's important for me too, because Christopher once said to me, would you ask a straight person what their sex life was like? If I asked you, well, how do you, what do you do with your sex life? I said, well, you know, actually I'm bisexual. I'm not straight. And to assume my sexuality, it, it, it's fine, but it, it, it's worth asking the question and understanding whether that has a resonance. And in fact, it doesn't. And that's one of the reasons why in making this series, it was important to me to not just let it go or say, oh, you decide and, and sort of indecorous or indiscreet to talk about Andy's sex life. Instead, it's the opportunity to excavate those erased relationships. You should talk about the third relationship that's so powerfully portrayed here, which is between Andy and Jean-Michel Basquiat, the amazing painter. It's another situation where I think you revisit that relationship with a contemporary lens, and it's a truly fascinating and complex relationship. It's fraught with so many <laughs> issues. You've got a famous painter engaging with an up-and-coming artist of color. Obviously, artists of color have basically been kept out of the art world for time immemorial until this time. So that's one backdrop for the relationship. Andy is perhaps sensing that he's maybe in a bit of a lull in his career. And here's this fireball of youth and exuberance, an incredible talent. And so there's a question of the vampiric quality of this relationship. Obviously, there's a racial component and a sexual component. As a filmmaker, as I said, this is so fraught. How did you, first of all, break this relationship down and the creative collaboration that was such a key part of it? And then 
go about reconstructing it for the film? Well, as you say, it's so fraught that my biggest priority was to be very careful and to not accept the conventional wisdom, which is that Andy somehow was Jean-Michel's mentor and gave him entree to the fine art world. Instead, in speaking with Greg Tate and Fred Braithwaite and Glenn Ligon and Paige Powell and Jeffrey Deitch, all of whom knew, except for Glenn, knew Jean-Michel at the time and had written about him and were able to speak to his rise and the ways in which he actually was already a very accomplished figure in the New York City art world, but was the victim of a lot of racist criticism. As Greg Tate says, the art history didn't exist yet. The scholarship didn't exist in order to place Jean-Michel within a trajectory and to understand his response to his reaction to other artists and movements. The diaries, you know, Jean-Michel is in Andy's thoughts and in his words almost more than anybody else, practically. And Andy says things that are also not acceptable. There's clearly racist language that he uses. And it was really important to me to bring that out and to address it. The other thing, which I think perhaps is new in this case, that I was able to translate some of Julia Warhola speaking in footage that Andy had shot at his home in the 1960s. Julia lived with Andy for a long time, and it appears that she had some views that were also racist. And in fact, in one exchange with Andy, she, in a not completely mentally all there state, I, I think she, she might have already been close to having dementia or Alzheimer's. She recalls an incident in which one of her children was involved in an altercation with members of their community in Pittsburgh who were Black. And then Bob Colicello also fills out some of that story to say that there were neighborhoods in the 1940s in Pittsburgh that had racial and ethnic divides. So all of this is part of Andy's point of view. Understanding Jean-Michel's stature as an artist and his capabilities artistically is an important thing as well. And then the story of Andy and Jean-Michel basically falling in love is also a critical component. Others who speak to this are Kenny Scharf and, and others that I spoke to. So my effort was to lean into the record, the historical record, and then also telling the story, which is fun too. I mean, that's the thing. It's a real dynamic bromance. It has erotic components. As Greg Tate says, Andy was drawn to the erotic energy of youth. You know, the vampiric quality that you were talking about, Ken, I think is also interesting, but I think it's really important not to give Andy a pass on anything that he did that was exploited. And Michael Herman who created a book about the photographs that Andy took of Michelle and the diary entries. He talks about the fact that Andy was his landlord because Jean-Michel rented a studio at Great Jones Street from Andy and how this was literally a systemic dynamic between the two of them that was unequal. Nevertheless, I think that Andy did relate to Jean-Michel in a way that wasn't as the vampire that we know, which I think in and of itself is maybe a homophobic cartoon of him that was created when Edie Sedgwick was part of the factory and sort of America's rich white, young white woman was taken in by the 
queer and sort of radical people at the factory. She ultimately, of course, died, but I believe after leaving the factory for some time, and somehow that story gets conflated into Andy exploiting her. That's not within the purview of the diaries period, the, the decade that I really was focusing on. But I do think that there's sometimes some ways in which Andy gets depicted as the vampire, and we can unpack that a little bit more. I think through those interviews and through the work itself, we see that that's not the case. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. And I would just say the work itself, the collaboration that they did painting on the same canvas is remarkable work. They did over 100 works of art between 1983 and 1985. One of the most amazing things is that you literally see in the artworks themselves how these two artists navigated their complicated dynamic. That's absolutely true. It's really critical to see how Jean-Michel actually helps Andy return to the brush and also to gain more confidence in deploying language in his artwork. Jean-Michel was famous for writing basically poetry. He had started as Samo, an artist who wrote on walls and, and in you know refrigerator doors throughout New York City. And he write phrases and then cross them out. Most young kings get their heads cut off is one example, which of course resonates very much when Andy's describing a party at Julian Schnabel's or with Julian Schnabel at Francesco Clemente's house where he says that art dealers are literally asking when is Jean-Michel going to die so that his artworks rise in price. But Andy, in collaborating with Jean-Michel on hundreds of works, then starts to incorporate some of that style or at least some of its thematic focus into his own work when he does the black and white ads which include advertising slogans and imagery like be somebody with a body and heaven and hell are just one breath away and repent and sin no more. These are some works that really have not been seen or studied very closely up until now. And they play a part in the Last Supper series and some of the works he does that then Jessica Beck analyzes as being a commentary on the HIV AIDS crisis. So this relationship with Jean-Michel is not just them going to Mr. Chow to parties together or area, although that's fun. But if you look at the diaries just for that, you're going to miss this other layer of Jean-Michel opening up a window for Andy to express himself. And I think for me, one of the most stunning window is the Paramount paintings because Paramount became a code for John Gould. John worked at Paramount and John had asked Michael, as you were saying at the end of the Cape Cod trip for Andy to stop referring to him by name in a romantic capacity. And so Andy starts using this code word of Paramount and it's actually shows up in the paintings. He starts doing the Paramount logo. That's probably one of the more clear examples of when you know the story of, of Andy's relationships, you understand the paintings on a new level because he's literally using these riddles there. When I was younger, that's when I first became enamored of Andy's work. And I remember my dad used to take me to galleries. My father's interested in art, but you know, owned a restaurant. So like totally far away from this world. I think he was not really a huge fan of Andy's work and, and would show me something and say, do you see anything there? When you look at the Marilyn Monroe, is it just like a portrait of Marilyn or is there something deeper? And I think there's this mystery that Andy is 
telegraphing in his works, almost like a riddle that is so compelling once you're able to understand his personal story. There's so much more we could talk about, but I want to end with what for me is one of the most remarkable moments in the entire diary, which is what Andy writes about or actually doesn't write about John Gould's death from AIDS in Los Angeles. And in the diary, Andy says, and the diary can write itself on the other news from LA, which I don't want to talk about. He then goes on to write some gossipy entry about Stephen Sprouse, the fashion designer. And in between these two parts of the entry, Pat Hackett, the editor, writes an editor's note stating that John Gould died on September 18 at age 33 after an extended illness. And she says a bit more about it. What does it say about Andy and about the diary that he couldn't face talking about or writing about John's death in this moment? I think everything is contained in that absence. It's again, I think a testament to the the value in reading between the lines, as Benjamin Liu says when he's describing another entry about the Diana Ross concert and, and Andy kissing Calvin Klein and feeling like he's getting AIDS by the stubble of Calvin Klein piercing into his cheeks. There was so much fear and anxiety around the HIV AIDS crisis. There was so much shame that the disease, the, the virus was something that was attached to identity that literally, if you're gay, not just if you have gay sex, but being a queer person, you are diseased and you will die from this ailment. So this idea that Andy grew up in a moment, you know, he was born in 1928, lived through the 40s and 50s in a period where you would be arrested for gay sex, for being out and, and queer. It was considered a mental illness then by the DSM. And in the 1980s, it's like literally a death sentence. It's tragic for John and for their relationship, but it's also just the most shameful form of punishment, not just one's life, but even being known as somebody after your death who died of AIDS. At that time, it was just unbelievably devastating. So of course, Andy doesn't necessarily want to talk about that in the diary because John has asked him not to talk about their relationship. And also John didn't want anyone to know that he was dying of AIDS. Only his brother knew. And Jay explains that Andy actually went to the hospital when he was first diagnosed in New York every night, even though he was incredibly scared of being in the hospital because after he had been shot, he was pronounced dead on the operating table and just had a mortal fear of going to a hospital. So in that moment where he does not explain that John has died of, of AIDS, I think you feel all of the, he wore a girdle for his whole life after he was shot. You feel all that being reined in and all of the pathos just being flattened out with, and the news can write itself from California. That's our role as journalists, as filmmakers, as art historians, critics, and in conversations like this in teasing it out because there are other people who are going through something similar in their own way. And I hope when they see the series, they feel the depth of they're not alone. Other people have struggled with this, even the great Andy Warhol. Do you want to talk about what's up next for you? I'm working on a couple of different things. One is about another art figure 
from the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Another queer story that's looking at artists who we've not always viewed as participating in that queer community, but actually were part of a very vigorous creative force in New York City and really had a, a, an important influence. And then also on uh, a fashion designer who similarly is one that we don't always understand comes from a queer point of view. I just want to congratulate you and compliment you on creating a work of art on your own that really does give the viewer an incredible sense of connection, personal connection to Andy Warhol. And on a personal note, I would just urge anyone, if you have the opportunity to go see an Andy Warhol exhibition, to please do so. I thought I knew everything about Andy Warhol. Of course, I knew very little as your documentary tells me, but even about the work itself, I went into this exhibition and within a matter of a few minutes, I was totally immersed and I left thinking, I don't know how it's possible, but Andy Warhol is possibly our most underrated artist. Thank you so much, Ken. And thank you, Michael. This has been such a great conversation. Really appreciate it.